Welcome to The Original Doll. I am your host, James Rodriguez. On The Original Doll, I interview songwriters, producers, and more of your favorite music. We learn a little bit more about this, give you more insight behind the albums and behind the songs. And at the same time, we give back to charity. For more information, visit www.theoriginaldoll.com. Find me on Instagram, the.original.doll. A big shout out to my Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for your support. And as with every episode of The Original Doll, any audio recording, ripping, stealing is strictly prohibited in every country in the world. My name is James Rodriguez. This is Iconography. Enjoy. The original doll. Everyone, I would like to welcome back to the original Dow with James Rodriguez, lovely, lovely returning guest Steve Lunt. Steve, thank you so much for being here again on the show. We appreciate it. It's my pleasure, James. You're everyone is like he's like the Wizard of Oz. He knows everything that's <laughs> happened behind the scenes. Like we want more information today. I kind of wanted to talk a little bit more in depth on Britney Spears's ballad "From the Bottom of My Broken Heart" because. We know that that was the last single that was released from her her huge album, and it was released in December of 99. But the funny thing is, and not many people might know, of course the Britney fans do know this, that this was like one of the first songs to be created ultimately for this album. That ultimately the final song, because this is Eric Foster White, who is her first, one of her first collaborators, I should say. So can you talk a little bit about how From the Bottom of My Broken Heart kind of came to be was it in those first sessions with eric foster white was this after you know that sort of thing how did the song come to be um i'm not quite sure of the timing uh, you might know better than i do like with some of the recording dates that i've sent you and everything uh to piece it together you know being uh mr sherlock holmes sherlock horton <laughs> um so uh but it wasn't part i don't believe it was part of this first it certainly wasn't part of the first songs uh that we put together in the initial uh trial period with Brittany to to then present to clive calder the chairman of jive to see if we wanted to continue and and um you know go ahead with the full album um it certainly wasn't one of those so by logic it would it would mean that we did that afterwards so it most probably came uh after we'd picked up the option to do the full album and we'd gone to maybe we'd gone to Sweden and then come back and and did a bit more with with Eric maybe, but it was, certainly wasn't part of the initial judgment process, if you like. Because that was something that was interesting, knowing what was recorded in in Sweden, those songs within those nine days kind of thing. Where I I always thought like, oh, was this maybe? Hey, we brought back this pile of songs. And to flush out the album, we're still kind of missing because I think that's the one thing that the listeners have said is that they didn't realize, oh, wait, it's not just you record song one today, two today, three tomorrow, and that's the order of the album kind of thing that there's still you can put it together and go, it doesn't work. So when you were compiling, orchestrating this whole album, how important was it for you on her debut album to give the listeners the ballads and then those big pop songs like how important was it to flush out her overall persona than just leaving it as it's just dance songs all the way through 
Right. Well, you know, we, we were blessed, and I was blessed being in A and R with this, with uh, with our relationship with Max Martin and the Cheer On crew, because you've got the first uh, one, two, three. You've got sort of three singles, you know, like and including international singles. Four, you know, I mean, I mean, one, yeah, yep. I mean, that's sometimes crazy, baby, I mean, and born. It's 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 almost. Uh, it's almost unheard of that you record that many hit singles in such a short space of time, but that's what we did in that, in that trip to Sweden. So I was blessed with that because when they, you know, when we came back from Sweden and I knew we had those in our back pocket, that's a hell of, hell of a spine for an album, you know, for a new artist, you know, you, you know, so then you're trying to just fill it out and color it out and everything and, and maybe get some other hits along the way. You don't know what you, what you're doing, but, uh, but with, with Eric, we had some really quality uh, songs already. You know, there was Soda Pop was done. Um, and there was and there were some other other ones that were sort of in, in the works. And we basically managed to fill out all of the, uh, you know, fill out all of the, the spots that needed to be filled out. I don't think we ever sat down and we were lucky in this regard because with most albums, you do exactly as you said. You, you sit down and say, okay, what are we missing here? I don't remember ever having that conversation with anyone. It was, it was, is this a good song? Yes. Is, is this not such a good song? No. You know, is, and then there were things like with uh, Deep in My Heart, which I know we want to get to maybe in more detail, but Deep in My Heart felt more like a European song. It's like a European dance song. If you listen to the, you know, to that, to the opening sort of keyboard pattern and everything, it feels very European. And it just didn't feel like he was right on an American album. Uh, it would have been, you know, just one direction too many, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I'd have watered the, the direction down just a little bit. So, you know, th those are the, the decisions we made. It was pretty easy having Max Martin on your, on your team. Well, and there's so, what we know is, you know, Eric Foster White working early on, then it was the Swedes. So when she came back, there were no other producer song or producers, I should say, that came in to work with her at that point. It was just the people that were already on deck. Because there were some theories believing that, oh no, she did like 10 more songs after that. I was like, everyone from the time that she came back from Sweden in like April, you know, slash May, I go until like Singapore is the next month. And then the song was starting to hit radio months later. I was like, no, there wasn't new people that were brought in right then and there. It's like, I feel like that would have been overkill when you to your point you have the spine of an album already and you knew the eric foster white songs were working so then how about this i mentioned before too how especially the mtv pop people you would always have the big dance song ballad then the big dance song you know what i mean like you would have you know the big bye 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 and the next one song might be a little mid-tempo or ballad kind of thing how important was that then when the singles from Clive and everyone were being decided? How important is it to have options to your point of, okay, if we're going to keep taking this album further, do we push out another upbeat song or is now a time to give the ballad because we're going to be moving into the next era of oops? Um, I don't think we thought about it as deeply as that, to be honest with you. Um, I think we just thought, what's the next best song on the album that, that feels like it uh, could be, you know, a hit single. It was, 
it was how do we keep this momentum going? Um, and a couple of different ways you can do that after Baby One More Time. You could come with sometimes that we did because it just felt like, you know, this gives another side of Britney straight away, but it still feels like a hit song, a hit record. Or you could go with another up-tempo, like You Drive Me Crazy. And that would feel, I believe, and I don't know what, what Clive thought, to be honest, but to me, that would feel like you're, you're doing um, Baby One More Time, part two, but not quite as good. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be my feeling for, for that, if we'd released the album version, at least, of uh, You Drive Me Crazy. Um, didn't feel like a total smash at that point as, as a follow-up. It felt like we had to sort of come with something that, that just got people talking again, that got people watching, and sometimes just seemed like the perfect song for that. And the video was great. She looked great on it. Give her a whole, gave just a, a different angle to who she is. And immediately from, from step one and two, we'd already established the blueprint for Britney, if you like. It was the up-tempo, like sassy, uh, that's a horrible word. I hate that. Means, but sassy, you know, like a you know, teenager doing the, uh, you know, d- doing her thing where she's very much in control. Then there was sometimes where it was the vulnerable, melodic, kind of, you know, ballady, you know, song, mid tempo. Uh, and I think those two songs in themselves just kind of sum up a lot of what Britney is still about to this day. And I think to your point is, I, I always, so many people say James sometimes like oh we don't even know if she likes it sometimes I'm like you'll find many artists who like early on in their career they're like oh I'm over singing this or do you know, or or also yeah. to be fortunate enough to have a career from when you're a teenager through your 30s and 40s like of course anybody looking back is like oh you know what I mean <laughs> like like those are songs that reminds them of a different time but I also think the great thing is that sometimes I believe as, as, a, as a fan of, of her discography was important because it showed that she wasn't a one hit wonder. And I'm not talking about just those chart things. She was able mm-hmm. to have a song come out that the public got attached to again. Like it didn't feel like there was a lot of work to make people go now watch the new Britney Spears sometimes video. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. and if it was, if it was a terrible song, I don't think, the album or anything would have taken off for as long as it as it did and and continues to do. Right. So the other thing that that we actually had questions of was at what point and here can I just, just elaborate on one thing there because mm-hmm. it's interesting you said that people you know that artists like they look back and they say I'm sick of singing that song. I'm I that it's kind of belly aching on my on my opinion when artists say that. I mean, you know, they say I'm sick of so I've been singing this song for 40 years. Well, yeah, you know, like you should be grateful. You've had a hit song that's lasted 40 years and you're complaining about singing it for three minutes a night. You know, what the fuck is that? You know, I mean, you know, I mean, seriously, just just be thankful that, that, that you have that because there's a million artists who don't get anywhere close to that ever. So... I, I don't have any sympathy with people saying they're bored of singing a song. Now, some artists, they decide that maybe they want to change up the arrangement. Okay. And that's kind of self-indulgent too, because the, because the, you know, the crowd, the 15,000 people that came to, to hear you sing your, your, your big worldwide hit don't really want to hear a, you know, an African reggae version with accompaniment by like harps and, 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 and flutes, you know, that's not what they came for. 
you, you know, they came to hear what it, how it sounds on the record so they could sing along and feel good about it. And I think that's your duty as a, as a performer, as an entertainer, to give them that. Now, if you want to go out on a limb on your next song after that and play something from your new album, fair enough, go for it and see if the audience goes for it. But on those hits, you know, just, just please, for God's sake, just give the people what they want and do it with a smile, you know. And Britney's done that to, to, to her credit. She's, she's done that. She plays these songs and she does reworkings of them, but they're always in the same spirit as the original. She doesn't suddenly change them up from being a, a dance song into a slash your wrists demo, uh, mm. you know, demo ballad. You know, she doesn't do that. So, um, so props to her on that. Well, and that's something that you just brought up. That was a, another question about in general, like at what point do you at Jive know an artist benefits from like the remixes? Like from right. the bottom, you know, Davidson Ospina, who I've interviewed a couple times. That, yeah. So my question then is, because the cool thing was when he talked about, I think it was creating the Oops remixes, he said, you know what? I just wanted to give something a little bit different for the househeads. He's like, the people that might not listen to Britney Spears music at a club might hear that and go, wait, what song is that? And I just thought, oh, this is kind of cool. Because then the, so the question then is, at what point, because you were around Backstreet Boys, Britney, NSYNC, all of these people, at what point do you think it really happened that Jive was like, oh, these remixes of Baby One More Time, Sometimes Crazy, are beneficial to these artists? You know what I mean? It, was that always a thing yeah. when you came into this picture? Uh, yeah, when I joined, you know, Jive in the, uh, in the I guess, mid-late 90s, um, it was kind of a thing, you know, the, it, it morphed because in the 80s, uh, the remixes were really purely for the clubs. Um, you'd have your, your pop single and then you do your club mix, like the eight minute version for the clubs, you know, where there'd be like three, three words from the singer of the actual song half the time. And the rest was just be you know, like, you know, the track, <laughs> whatever, which is great. And it, and it really the clubs are really influential in those days. And they, in fact, they influence radio because you could have bands like uh, New Order, you know, and they would mm -hmm. have a song that would be okay for radio at the time, but then it blew up in the clubs and suddenly radio would pick up on it again. So it was very influential. Um, by the time we got to the 90s, um, remixes took on a, on a different responsibility. I think um, they tended to... Labels, you know, the clubs weren't as important at that point in breaking a record because there was all these, uh, you know, the, there were the pop radio stations and there was dance radio stations and there was adult radio stations. The, the whole thing had split wide open. So at this point, remixes were kind of done with a view to trying to break into different genres. For instance, with Britney, we, you know, if you had a ballad, you might want to try and... Uh, make that thing a little hipper to so I guess maybe on some urban radio play or on uh, on stations that that are halfway in between being that top 40 and adult you know there was a lot of different places so you you tended to go for mixes like that that worked the Ospina mixes are really good I mean he's really good and uh, in fact I listened to uh, uh, from the bottom of my broken heart his remix for that today and uh, it's really good I mean, it changes all the chords, turns the song into a totally different song, but it still has the same feel and the same intent. You know, when she sings it, you you believe it. It's you know, mm -hmm. it's a you know, some remixes you don't believe the singer. You just know it's a it's a an uh, um, 
it's an exercise by the producer to show how clever they are. And some people don't, some remixes don't, don't take the song and the artist into account because that's not really their job. Their job is to get people on the dance floor, you know, um, mm-hmm. or, or get radio play. But like they, in, in, in his case, he, he really took the song into account and he, he just made a really commercial version of the song, you know, that, that just felt, you know, uh, uh, good to me. And everyone, here's a little snippet of the Davidson Ospina remix. second to let you know you can join me on patreon just go to www.theoriginaldoll.com a pop-up will come up and if with your donations we're able to keep this show going and you'll be able to get some kind of exclusive content stuff that was cut from the show and further information join it www.theoriginaldoll.com and don't forget you could rate this on your preferred streaming platform now back to the show i asked him specifically i said why is it called like why is the the 12 inch vinyl called the crossover remixes he's like because that's what i was hired to do get her to cross over yeah. into different different genres so that would have been more r&b so it's in with the the young teen black artists that, that were on on uh, on the softer uh, r&b stations yeah absolutely and so then let me ask you this because i got these questions a lot because many people know you worked with brenda k star you had things released how did that work for 80s remixes because to your point you know, we look now and everyone's like, oh, you could have a thousand, you know, different things in one song. You could move this out. But back, you know, 30, 40 years, you didn't have the option of having a thousand different, you know, parts to a song that like sometimes I think right. it was um, Shep Pettibone or somebody was talking about. He's like, you would take the tape and you would cut it and you would legitimately cut and you would add this stuff. So yeah. how how limited then by today's standards were producers trying to do a remix or even extended version how much harder was it to do it than how it is now do you know like then it was just like you just assume that's the way we do it but now looking at what technology can do how much more difficult was it to actually go in there and extend yeah. mixes or create remixes right it's uh it's mind-bending the difference on a from a technological uh level the difference um, between the 80s and the 90s or the 80s and uh, and now with the remixes and i know because i tried it i mean i'm not a dj but i tried doing you know uh, some edits on a on a remix in the style of the uh, the 80s in the 80s and i and the amount you had literally had to what you did is you you you, you did you had to run off all these different versions on tape um like without the vocals with the vocals with certain instruments like you know, muted out. A lot of the time you were just like winging it. Um, and then you take all those tapes and you have to splice them together physically. 
So for people who don't know how that's done, you take the tape, you put it in a little metal tray and you slice it with a razor blade. And, uh, you know, and you've got to get it right on the beat. You've got to line it up on the head. So everything, the tape goes across those playback heads like, and you've got to get like right at the beginning of that kick drum beat. And that's where you edit. And then you edit it into another place at the beginning of the kick drum. And it's, so if you want to get a, a thing that goes like, I, 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 like a stutter vocal, like which now you can do in two seconds with software on, on, uh, on Pro Tools. That took maybe, you know, if you wanted to do like a five second stutter vocal like that, it, it would take maybe an hour, you know, just, just, it's literally, I mean, you know, it's the difference between, uh, between cutting down a tree with a chainsaw and cutting down a tree with a penknife. That's kind of what it is. It's like, it, it's, it's hard work. So in order to do these mixes, it was, it was a you know, labor of love. And that's why these guys got paid such a lot of money in those days to do the remixes. In fact, when I did the Brenda K. Starr um, songs, which uh, you listeners might not know anything about, you know, a lot of those early dance remixes in the eighties, but as a history lesson, the, the, you know, in those days I was a songwriter and producer and, and not working for a, for a label. So I'd write the song, demo the song at home. And then uh, once it was, once the label said, yeah, we love this song for such and such an artist, you know, go into the studio, record it in the studio. But you'd have to know at the time you're recording and arranging that song that okay, this is a dance artist. You know, she's kind of pop, but she's a dance artist. In Brenda K. Star, she was a Latino, like a Puerto Rican, uh, New York girl. And, uh, and you knew it was gonna have to appeal to that Latina hip hop crowd in the, in the you know, that the was there in the eighties in New York. So you'd have to be thinking of the remix as you were making the single mm -hmm. itself, knowing that the remix might be the thing that breaks first and then helps the pop single get on the radio, which is exactly what happened, you know, in the, in the songs I did with her. It was a, it's a very laborious uh, way of doing things back in those days. It's from talking to so many different, you know, producers of remixes, it was the amount of work. Cause to me, as just a fan of music, I would just put on the record or put on the cassette or put on the CD. And I didn't think that much about it because now we're right. in such a, digitally advanced stage with everything where now I can go through and I could remove anytime I say, Oh, on this, this interview in a matter of seconds, whereas before you would take the actual thing, have to listen to it. And I think that's kind of the, a couple of people said, sometimes you would end up with a good mistake where you're like, Oh, yeah. Okay. And it's like, not all the time, but sometimes you're like, you know what, that that's okay. <laughs> But I just think it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's funny you do like, I think in any creative process, you have to leave yourself open to, to the lucky mistake because you make a mistake and you don't think of it. You've got to leave yourself open to not thinking of that as being a mistake, but being like just one of those electric moments that you can't explain. But as you said, 99 times out of a hundred, it's not a good mistake. It's just a mistake. <laughs> and it sounds awful. Yeah. Well, the other thing that, that's been insane is to learn over the years how so many people thought every single time that a remix got made, it was just the label paying it out of their own pocket. That was it. And some of these artists came forward and was like, no, that actually came out of my budget because it was, you know, it, now it's under the, the marketing side or whatever it is sort of thing. But the, my question is, 
with the jive artists in general were the jive artists involved in in did they get a here's what the remixes sound like or because how fast these things were coming out they were backstreet boys was already on tour while they're you know this other remix is happening britney's on tour going this way while this other remix did the did the artist just go jive do your thing kind of thing where they're like you all know what you're doing or was there ever any artist where they would go in and say i think it would be cool to do this kind of remix or i'm not a fan of do you know what i mean like how much power did those artists have during this time and that was across the board different then than now right um to be honest i don't i can't remember an instance of when one of the artists that i worked with said you know, I'd like to do this kind of remix or this, that, or the other. I think it was more the former of what you said. And that's like, you're the record company, you know what to do and you know the reasons you're doing it. Um, having said that, you know, like the artists that I was working with were, were mainly the teen artists, you know, who who didn't really, they, they weren't really knowledgeable about the business in general, you know, and, uh, and so it isn't like they came forward and said, no, I insist on this. You know, I think as an older artist would, um, and, you know, while some people may think, okay, well then it's just the label, you know, forcing things on the artist. That's the negative way of looking at it. The positive way is that we're, the positive way of looking at this is that the label is, is adding its expertise in order to further their career to the next level, which is exactly what happened in, in the, in the in case of the, in the cases of the artists on Jive, I mean, just look at the artists we had. I mean, no one can deny that we that we took their their careers to a different level from when we first signed them. You know, mm-hmm. and it isn't a case of using people; it's a case of um, um, you know, we know what we do, and uh, and we know how to keep their career alive. Maybe after one hit, many artists just disappear we had a, a knowledge of how to keep that career going. And in the case of, uh, of say, Justin Timberlake or even the Backstreet Boys now and, uh, and Brittany, you know, we've, we've turned this into a, a lifelong career for these, for these teenagers who came from, you know, you know, from, from a Disney background. Now it mm-hmm. doesn't make us saints. It just, it just makes us kind of good at what we did, I believe. Well, and what was great is, and, and the listeners, I'm going to be going through a, a bunch because I think it's important for us to know where in relation Britney was along with the rest of the Jive artists because From the Bottom was released in December of 99 and it was the same day as Backstreet's Show, Show Me the Meaning of Being Lonely. Now, many people may say, why is it the same date? And it's like, a lot of times it's like, let's hit radio. If there's not the Christmas song out there by them, let's give them a ballad to be able to add in seamlessly because at Christmas you think of, you know, now the Mariah Carey, all I want for Christmas is you, or you think of miss you most at Christmas time kind of ballads. And I always think I love seeing what Jive released themselves during this time. And we get a lot of questions. And so this dives right into the question is, you know, Steve, was there ever a master schedule for Jive artist release dates? Like, because now we talk about like Marvel or Disney where they're like, January of 2026, we're doing this. May of 2027, we're doing that because they know production is on here. You wouldn't be releasing a Backstreet and Sync Britney albums on the same exact day. So was there ever talk with scheduling? Like, who ultimately would be saying, 
we cannot release all of our albums the same day, all of our singles the same day. Like, how much did the schedule play into the releasing of these artist albums? Um, everything. You know, there's there's no, I think, and, and this is the same with every label. It's not just Jive. I mean, great efforts are made to uh, uh, to make sure that you weren't competing with yourselves. You know, because if you released one Jive artist on the same day as another and you sort of cannibalize each other's sales because people only have so much money in their pocket, that's not the ideal situation. So we always try to separate by weeks at least, you know, in order to get one album or one single underway at radio or retail before you start on the next one. Um, So that was always important. Now you had no real control over when other labels were releasing Mm -hmm. their main too. So that was always, you know, kind of a, you know, a a card game there to see how you're going to, (laughs) to juggle your releases compared to a rival label. Uh, with their main artists and you tried to and and having said that it was also in the other labels interest to know when you were releasing so a lot of the time there's 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 discussion back and forth because it's in nobody's best interest to be releasing stuff that's just you know uh it's counterproductive to have that sort of competition you you said that uh, from the bottom of our broken heart was released on the same in the same week as as a as show me the meaning of being lonely which which actually surprises me um, because they're both ballads and they're both from, from major artists. What date was that? Do you, you have that date? December 14th. Okay. So that would explain some of it because we're trying to get um, attention to get on, you know, to get on those Christmas playlists is really hard. It's really hard because from maybe November onwards, a lot of stations just play Christmas music. Half their playlists are taken up with Christmas music. And for new music, it's especially for new artists, it's a terrible time to release stuff. But for artists who had already got a foothold, like both Britney and Backstreet Boys, they're both major artists by that point. You know, that was what Britney's fourth single, I think, mm-hmm. of the of the, uh, of the album. So both acts were established, and I think we must have felt confident that uh, that that it wasn't going to negatively affect you know the situation. And you you maybe you get a foothold at because they're both ballads too, and it's Christmas, it's a sentimental time. So you you get a little bit of a foothold in radio that after the Christmas songs end, which is like the day after Christmas, and you get back to normal playlists. But these have already got a foothold in there, and they're good for the new year. You know, that I think that's the, uh, the principle. But that's not an A&R decision. That's not something I would, scheduling isn't something I would have been directly involved in. Well, and that's one of those things that we had... Um... Paxton guy who's radio program we've been in radio for like 26 27 years and he just talked he's oh, like there's God. a point he's like he's like there's a point where it's just you basically pause the playlist you don't he's like you're not trying to break a new artist that whole time no. and even if for those of us who are album trackers or anything that's why you don't release these albums like the two weeks before christmas and some people said what i go if you look at even christmas albums those get released in October, at the end of October. The other thing, too, is Jive is slash was is a business. They want to make sure they're profiting every quarter. So if you throw all that money to the end and it doesn't happen, there's going to be a lot of job cuts and everything. And some people may say, well, where was NSYNC at the time? 
people, this is what's amazing. At that time, in December of 99, Backstreet's out with Show Me the Meaning of Being Lonely, Britney from the Bottom. A month later would be the debut of NSYNC's Bye 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 from their No Strings Attached album. So they were not trying, as long as they were working on that album and all that stuff was happening, they were not going to be releasing anything in time for, like, it was going to be a big moment for everyone. And so that's where they were at. The last thing that I wanted to ask is, do you think that this was a good place to have put a bow on the project to move on to the next one? Do you think that from the bottom was a good way to end that whole baby album getting ready for where she would go next? Uh, yeah, I believe so, because um, I don't think any of the uh, the other songs on the album were real um, smashes. They weren't real smash hit singles. You know, you look back on them now and you love them because they have sentimental value and ever. But like at the time, they didn't feel like hit singles. And I think they weren't. Um, there were some really good songs there, but there's a huge difference between a hit single and a great album track. There's a, a massive difference. So um, I think that, I think we ended it at the right place. You know, to, to, to have to end on a, on a downer would have been, and I don't mean song tempo-wise, I mean quality-wise, but to, mm. to end on a downer where the, where the single didn't really chart and didn't, didn't really do well is not a good setup for the next album. Four, four singles off a, off a debut album and all hits, it's pretty good. You know, so mm -hmm. I think... Uh, I think, you know, I think it was a good place to end. I think we made the right decision. Thank you so much for joining us. And a big shout out to all the Patreon patrons because you were able to keep this show going. And thank you so much to the guests who, because of you, were able to get so many items for those in need. For more information, visit www.theoriginaldoll.com. Don't forget to rate and review and share this with any of your friends who also love music and want to promote the arts. And if you do, in fact, have any suggestions for future guests, please go to www.theoriginaldoll.com, scroll down to the comment section, or hit me up in my DMs at Instagram, the.originaldoll, Twitter at James Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z, or at TikTok at the James Rodriguez. My name is James Rodriguez. I'll see you on the flip side.